Guys, I invite you to take your Bibles this time and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text today. We're going to look together at Matthew 23, verses 37 to 39. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, verses 37 to 39. This is God's holy word for us today. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is God's holy word for us this morning. Let's pray together. May the unfolding of your word give us light, O God, that we may be instructed in your wisdom. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Empower the preaching of your word, we pray, that we might receive it with faith and with eagerness to obey. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We come this morning to the last sermon in this series for Lent. It's the last Sunday in Lent, and it's the last sermon in the series that we've been doing on repentance. The first three, we looked at, the first, at three benefits of repentance, that repentance is healing to our conscience, to our hearts, to our lives. We saw that repentance is cleansing. It cleanses our record of our sins, and it cleanses our heart of its corruption. And we saw that repentance is canceling. It cancels the condemnation that hangs over us as an eternal consequence of our sin. And then we turn to look at the requirements, the three requirements of repentance. And we saw that the first is that repentance is from the heart. And then last week we saw that if repentance is from the heart, then it's going to come with a changed life. Repentance is from the heart, and repentance is life-changing. And this morning we come to the third and final requirement of true biblical repentance. And this third requirement coincides with Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the commemoration of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Palm Sunday is the celebration of the arrival of the king to his capital to take his throne. And Palm Sunday is the commencement of Holy Week, the Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' earthly life. He rides in as king at the beginning of the week, and at the end, he has his coronation where he takes his crown and mounts his throne, but in a divine twist, he is coronated with a cross and a crown of thorns. These two themes, the third requirement of repentance that we look at today and Palm Sunday, they come together this morning. 
For the third requirement of repentance is this. Repentance is allegiance to Jesus. It is allegiance to King Jesus. In our passage this morning, we see the lament of Jesus over the rejection of His kingship by His own capital city of Jerusalem. We see Jesus' denunciation of both the city and the temple as the consequence of their rejection. And we see, finally, the serious warning that Jesus gives, His warning that they will remain forsaken and destitute until they reverse their rejection and recognize the reign of King Jesus. And in these three parts in our passage, we see the application to us of our repentance. True repentance is not only from the heart. True repentance is not only life-changing, but true repentance is allegiance to Jesus. Let's begin with Jesus' lament in verse 37. Look at verse 37 with me, where Jesus cries out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You can hear the feeling of Jesus as he says, O Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, the feeling, the depth of passion in Jesus as he cries out here. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus entered Jerusalem, as we read earlier in Matthew 21, His triumphal entry. He entered into Jerusalem in fulfillment of the Scriptures as the King of Israel, as the Son of David, the heir to the throne, the Messiah, the only one who has the right to rule. But Jerusalem has a history of rejecting those whom God sends to her. That's what he says at the beginning of verse 37, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Jerusalem has a bad history of a hard heart that rejects any advance of God sending a prophet or some other messenger. They violently oppose it. And in Matthew's gospel, you don't have to go back very many chapters to see the last prophet that they opposed was John. John the Baptist. And here, at the end of Jesus' Passion Week, Jesus has faced this same rejection by Jerusalem. How often would I have gathered but you were unwilling. Now Jesus comes in a long line of men sent by God to Jerusalem who has faced opposition, rejection, and refusal, and now it's His turn to face that same violent hostility. And He cries out that He would have embraced, He would have loved, He would have saved the inhabitants of Jerusalem. But the leadership of the city refused. 
And you can see this. He said, he does not say, how often would I have gathered you together and you were not willing? He says to the city, how often I would have gathered your children. You see, it's the leaders of Jerusalem. It's the rulers of the people who have opposed Jesus from the start. The rulers of the people were unwilling to accept Jesus as king. And you know that because of the context, not only of the whole book, but of this long chapter, chapter 23, where it's just Jesus opposing the scribes and Pharisees who are the leaders of the people. He says this in chapter 23, verse 13. "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites!' You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. That's the opposition he's facing. And he laments for the people of Jerusalem, for the Jewish people, his people, because the rulers of the people refuse to welcome and accept Jesus as the king. And this lament can teach us about the nature of repentance and the nature of ourselves. If repentance is allegiance to Jesus, then unrepentance is rebellion against Jesus. Unrepentance is refusing your king. When it comes right down to it, an unrepentant heart is a heart that will not welcome, receive, acknowledge, or accept Jesus in His kingship over you. The opposite of repentance is rebellion against the King. In our natural fallen state, we are in this state of rebellion already and all the time. We ourselves oppose the overtures of God's grace consistently before we are converted to Christ. We ourselves stone the prophets and kill those that are sent to us. Now, we don't physically commit violence, but in our hearts, we harden our heart and we resist and we rebel and we refuse and we put up our defenses and we will not allow the advance of grace to have its way with us. We will not acknowledge the king. This is our natural state of hostility to God. A state of rebellion. We oppose God's grace, God's word, God's kingdom. We resist his claims upon us. We are fundamentally unwilling to bend the knee and have Jesus for a king. How often would I have gathered, you are unwilling And Jesus, in response to this rejection from the depths of his lament, he he mourns in verse 38. He says, See, behold, your house is left to you desolate. This is the natural consequence of Jerusalem's refusal. Jesus would have sheltered them as a hen with her chicks. 
But now Jerusalem is exposed. They're not under the wings. They're not under the protection. They are exposed. They are out in the open. They are without cover or protection. The city, the temple, the people are left to themselves, to their own devices, to their own defenses. They are alone. They are desolate. This word desolate means deeply, painfully empty, severely alone. That's the condition they're in. Specifically in the text and in the context, he says in verse 38, See, your house is left to you desolate. Your house. Jesus, as he's saying these words, is in the temple. You can see that from the first verse of of chapter 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away. So he's in God's house when he says these words. He's in the nucleus of the capital of Israel. The centermost point of the Jewish homeland. Jesus means by house, he means the city, and he especially means that the temple are abandoned, desolate, left to you, desolate. A desolate temple is an uninhabited temple, an empty temple, which means God has left the building. The place where the Spirit of God is supposed to dwell and reside is left desolate. This is exactly what Ezekiel tells us happened when the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. That God's Spirit, he saw in a vision the Spirit of God, the glory cloud, the Shekinah of God, the tangible, visible presence that he sometimes causes to appear to our feeble little eyes. And he, Ezekiel, in a trance of a vision, he sees the glory, as it, as it were, just sort of levitate up out of the temple, and it goes across the mountains to the east, and it's gone. And he says to write the word Ichabod on the temple, which means forsaken, desolate, empty. The Spirit of God has departed, and the Babylonians come in and destroy. Now Jesus, who was accused of sounding like Jeremiah, who prophesied the, the destruction of the temple, is now starting to sound like Ezekiel. As he says, your house is left desolate. This temple is empty. And then he, like Ezekiel's vision of the glory cloud rising up and leaving, he rises up and leaves in a dramatic parable that when I go, I take God with me. You are left to yourselves. Jesus enacts what he says. He puts life into his words. He lives it out. He embodies it. In his own life. An empty or a desolate temple is an uninhabited temple. And then perhaps most fearfully of all, a desolate city is an uninhabited city. Think exile. Think destruction. It's the desolation of war that is coming. The desolation of war. It's no accident that Jesus says, your house is left to you desolate. And in the very next chapter, in verses 15 and 16, he warns about the abomination of 
desolation. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, the temple, and then he says, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He means your house, your city is left to you desolate. It's empty of God's presence now, and it will be empty of God's temple and God's people when the Romans are done with you. Oh, how often I would have gathered you up like the chicks under the hen's wings. I would have protected, I would have cared, I would have kept you. You would have been spared, but because you were unwilling, now your temple, your city, your people are doomed to desolation. And you know that the abomination of desolation refers to the Roman armies who come in and sack the city and destroy it and burn and obliterate the temple so that there's almost nothing left even to this day. You know he means the Roman armies because when Luke records this exact same statement from Jesus, he takes out the part that says, let the reader understand because he tells you what Jesus meant. He doesn't mention the abomination of desolation. Let the reader understand. He doesn't mention Daniel. He doesn't leave it as this sort of mysterious prophecy. You've got to flip back to the other part of your Bible and figure out. Luke tells you what Jesus means because Luke knows what Jesus means. And in Luke 21, verses 20 and 21, he says, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. It's exactly parallel. He just tells you what Jesus meant instead of leaving it as a mystery. When Jerusalem is surrounded by Roman armies, then its desolation has arrived. The time of desolation has come. The doom is falling. Destruction, exile, the curse has come. Jesus could have saved them but now they are doomed to desolation at the hands of the Romans. Which is why Jesus says in the very next two verses, chapter 24, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. And, but he answered them, you, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That's what he's talking about. The desolation will come in full. Likewise, Christian, let us learn the lesson of refusing our king. Let us learn the lesson that refusing our king brings desolation. It brings desolation to individuals. The emptiness the painful, deep emptiness of a life apart from Christ. And we look around us, perhaps in our families, perhaps among our friends, in our neighborhoods. We look around us and we see, or we see on social media, or we hear on the news, we are aware of so many desolated lives lived apart from Christ, seeking to fill the void of emptiness with everything they can stuff in there, men, women, and children, and all of the desolation that comes in people's lives. 
emptiness and brokenness and loneliness. It works out in all kinds of little ways like spikes in depression and anxiety that come from who knows where sometimes. Desolated lives. We see also the emptiness of our cities, our neighborhoods, our nation. We live in desolated, a desolated society where there is this gnawing emptiness that we try to fill politically, economically, socially, culturally, with entertainment or science or you name it. We try to cram anything we can into our society to fix it, make it better, bring about, the, bring about heaven on earth. Our kingdom come, our will be done on earth. And we bring desolation to our societies. And we see tragedy, we see violence, we see division, we see desolation. When we refuse the king, we have desolated lives. We find desolated societies all around us with ourselves being a contributing factor. It's not those people out there, it's me too. I'm part of the brokenness too. And finally, we see the emptiness of eternity apart from Christ. The desolation of eternal separation from God, which is the best definition the Bible has for what hell is. The best definition of hell is not worms that gnaw on you for eternity or devils with pitchforks or, you know, pitch blackness but also a big fire. How does that work? Right? The Bible uses all these different images that are not supposed to all fit together into one like literal picture of hell. They're all these like horrendous little metaphors that are like, it's not literally this, but it's like at least this bad, but worse is what they're trying to do. They're trying to point you to something that's worse, that's beyond itself. It'll be like being in pitch blackness all alone, but at the same time it'll be like feeling yourself burning, and at the same time it'll be like this absolute cavernous, infinite loneliness where you're floating in a universe of nothing all by yourself, and yet there's lots of people there too. It's, it, there's all these images for what hell is, but at bottom, it's just a drift in eternity alone, apart from God. How often I would have gathered you together. I would have pulled you close in the embrace of eternal fellowship. But you were unwilling, and so you will have the cavernous desolation of an empty eternity. This is what happens when we refuse the king. Desolated lives, desolated societies, and the, and the desolation of hell. But there is a way of escape. There is a way of escape held out to us rebel sinners. In the sobering warning of verse 39, Jesus implicitly holds out hope that our fortunes can be reversed. If we recognize the crown rights of Christ, He will come and He will rescue. Look at verse 39. He says, For I tell you, you will not see me again. Now, if He just stopped there, this would be a curse. This would be a threat. This would just be hopeless. You're never going to see me again. You had your chance. You refused. No more chances. You're done. But He doesn't stop there. He says, You will not see me again. Until, until you say, blessed is he 
who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When you do that, Jesus will return to you. He will come to you. When Jesus says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that is a quote from Psalm 118. Verse 26. Listen to Psalm 118, 25 and 26, and you'll know why Jesus quoted this. It'll make perfect sense in this context. Psalm 118, 25 and 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The house that was left desolate. The house that he will not return to until we learn to say what the psalm says. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from this empty house. We beg you to return. Come back. We changed our minds. We've made a horrible error. When Jerusalem does this, salvation. Now Jerusalem has yet to do this. Don't you be like that. Your time is today. Your time is now. The time of visitation is this hour, this moment. When we cry out from our desolated house, blessed is he who came in the name of the Lord, blessed is Jesus, the king, I changed my mind, I bow the knee. No more refusal. Save us out of this desolation. I am yours. Save me. When we do this, that's repentance. We no longer refuse our king, but we bow the knee. And we recognize the crown rightfully belongs on his head. And our lives rightfully belong in his service. If you've noticed the thread from our scripture readings today, this theme runs right through. In Isaiah 45, 22 and 23, it says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Bowing the knee and swearing allegiance is the way you turn to him to be saved. And Paul picks this up in the great hymn to Christ in Philippians 2. And he says in Philippians 2, 10 and 11, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. You hear him echoing Isaiah 45. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven, on earth, under the earth, the whole cosmos is his realm At the name of Jesus, everything bows the knee, and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul keeps the the bowing the knee part from Isaiah, bow to me, bow to Christ, and then he changes the allegiance part from Isaiah, and he says, confess that Jesus is Lord. So when you confess him as Lord, you're swearing your allegiance, pledging your allegiance to the king and his kingdom, and it redounds to the glory of the Father. Your submission to God's man for you, Christ, 
goes through Jesus up to the Father. That's how Isaiah gets fulfilled. When you bow the knee, when you pledge your allegiance to Jesus, and that's what repentance is. It's submitting to God by submitting to God's man for you, the Son of God who came for us to be king, to be ruler. Repentance just is allegiance to Jesus from the heart that results in that changed life. Because when Jesus gets a hold of you, you cannot stay the same. When you've really become a follower of this king, you start marching in his service, living for his will. When you bow the knee, you get up off that knee and you start living a new life from the heart, a heart that loves Jesus, yields to him, wants him, craves him. Your food and your drink is to do his will now. You are a changed person. You're a new creature in Christ. So on this Palm Sunday, Christian, open the gates of your heart and your life that the King of glory may come in. Bow the knee and swear your oath of allegiance to King Jesus and follow him from the heart with a changed life. May Jesus enjoy a triumphal entry into our hearts today. And may he reign there always. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent us your Son to be for us our King and our Savior. And we turn our hearts to him and we open wide the gates and we say, Enter into your throne, O King of glory. Be my King today. Be my Savior today. Do not leave me desolate, but fill me with your presence. Fill me with your love. Fill my life with newness and wholeness. May we all belong to you today. Have your throne in our hearts. Have your throne in our hearts. And may you reside there always. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.